For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, we'll get the latest on budget negotiations and funding for kids' care from the state capitol. I'll talk with comedian David Cross. Meet Alicia Schooler Hug, the niece and biographer of jazz great Charles Mingus, and find out how traditional Arizona building techniques are being passed down and put to use. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Arizona legislature is working towards completing a budget for the upcoming fiscal year. Details of the plan are being kept quiet for now, but children's advocates are hoping an insurance program will make the final bill, as Christopher Conover reports. Kids Care is an insurance program for children living in low-income families. It is supposed to fill a gap for families who don't have health insurance but make too much money to qualify for access, the state's Medicaid program. For example, a family of four making $2,000 a month may qualify for access. If that same family of four makes $4,000 a month, they may qualify for kids' care. The Great Recession put the brakes on kids' care. In 2010, the legislature froze enrollment for budgetary reasons. Dana Namark with the Children's Action Alliance says the federal government is now willing to pick up the cost of reopening kids' care. This bill, or the budget, if we unfreeze kids' care, would bring Arizona along with the whole rest of the country so that our kids won't stay behind children in every other state, and it gives parents an affordable option. The Children's Action Alliance is leading an effort to convince state lawmakers to reopen enrollment. The House approved the change, but it's hung up in the Senate, where Senate President Andy Biggs is holding the bill. We requested an interview or a statement from President Biggs about the topic, but were turned down. In the past, he said he doesn't like the idea because it costs taxpayers money. Dana Namark says that's an oversimplified way of looking at the issue. Well, he's absolutely correct. It's not free. What we say is that it is uh, covered by the federal taxes Arizonans have already paid. So we've been paying our federal taxes. This is getting our share. Instead of having those dollars and that health coverage literally go to children in other states. Doctors are on the front line of the kids' care issue as they deal with sick children. Oro Valley pediatrician Dr. Eve Shapiro says she sees the effects of a loss of insurance on her patients. So if they don't have any health insurance, they avoid going to the doctor because things are very costly now. So I see that in my own practice where um, I had patients on kids' care who lost that insurance and then they couldn't come to see me or they felt they couldn't financially. And um, sometimes things would uh, reach the point where families had to go to an emergency room and, you know, those costs are 
significantly greater than just um, coming to um, to a doctor's office. Dr. Shapiro says most people think of kids as healthy, and many are. But she says plenty of children have chronic diseases, like asthma, that strike kids regardless of whether or not their family has health insurance. She says that becomes a particular problem for medications, the cost of which are skyrocketing. For example, I mentioned asthma. Uh, those medications can be very expensive. Um, even when we were in flu season, um, somehow the cost of Tamiflu, the drug for um, for uh, flu, um, has gone up to over $150 for a treatment, and it used to be, you know, a few dollars. Kids Care supporters are hopeful the program will be reopened through the legislative budget process. They say they hear good things, but budget negotiations are held behind closed doors, so they won't be sure it's in the budget until the final document is approved by state lawmakers. Capital observers say that vote could come as early as next week. If Kids Care doesn't make it into the budget, Arizona will continue to be the only state in the nation without a children's health insurance program. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Watch enough current TV, and comedian David Cross will turn up somewhere. From his own series, The Increasingly Poor Decisions of Todd Margaret, to Arrested Development, to The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Cross also does voice work for animation, and writes and produces a range of cutting-edge comedy projects. He'll be coming to Tucson on May 5th to perform stand-up. That gave me a chance to talk with David Cross about his recent reunion with his Mr. Show partner Bob Odenkirk and their friends for With Bob and David. I asked if he felt like they were picking up where they left off almost 18 years ago. In a way, in a, in a surprising way, in, in that it was such a uh, seamless, smooth transition, I suppose. I mean, we're all older and we're smarter, wiser, more mature, more experienced have been in this business. You know, a lot of us stay in touch. Uh, Bob and I are very close and, uh, you know, a handful of those guys we're, we continue to work with. And But we've always been in touch. We all have mutual friends or part of the same community. And, you know, I live in New York now, but that's still I'm out in L.A. quite a bit. And it did have a, a feeling of picking up where we left off and everybody just uh, innately kind of went back to the same dynamics we've always had, you know, uh, and it was a lot of fun. It was it was great fun. Over the time that you weren't working together uh, on on camera, were you saving ideas? Were you thinking, oh, this this is going to be a good one uh, for the next? Oh, time absolutely. We, we we toured a couple times. Uh, we did yeah. two uh, mini tours. One one to promote a book, and one just for the hell of it. We took elements of this movie script we had written that we knew was never going to get made and made that into a stage show and then incorporated other sketches into it. And Bob was working with this sketch group called the Birthday Boys on IFC and he was writing stuff that, you know, if they didn't want it, then that was just on his pile and he'd see if, you know, we wanted to do it in, in some capacity and then, you know, he and I might look at it and rewrite it and make it more of our voice and, uh, so yeah, there was uh, there, there's 
plenty of ideas. I've got one sitting on my desktop on my computer that I started to write uh, when I was in London last working on the Todd Margaret. I saw this documentary about this guy, this real guy, and I thought it was ripe for a comedy sketch. So I just started writing it, and it will never appear anywhere unless Bob and I do it. <laughs> and, you know, maybe we'll do it. We're, we're hoping to do another with Bob and David, so... Uh, when I first got to know you as a performer on TV, uh, I, was, I noticed how much these little talents that you would uh, pull out, whether it was accents or g- jumping and clicking your heels together, and I thought, man, he must have had a musical theater training to uh, to know how to do this stuff. It seemed like a lot of things on Mr. Show revolved around your singing and dancing talents, which people may not have uh, expected from you. You know, I, I, I did have a few years in musical theater, and it's something that is is so ripe and easy to parody. And, uh, you know, I have a, a, a decent enough singing voice that, uh, and Bob is a terrible singer. Um, so the, all <laughs> that just got thrown to me. And, uh, but it was also something I could do and make him laugh. And it, it all, everything started basically with making each other laugh. The genesis of a bit, the idea of the kernel uh, that we write an entire scene around. Yeah, I do a little less of that now. You know, looking up on your Internet Movie Database page, which I, you probably hang out there all the time, right? Um, <laughs> there's, there's several pages of actually pretty good debate and conversation going on about an open letter that you wrote to Larry the Cable Guy, and it inspired mm-hmm. conversation about religion and atheism. And I've t- got to tell you, for an IMDB page, it's not a bad discussion that's going on. There's like eight or nine pages of it. Um Wow, really? I had no idea. Yeah, is that is that? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I assume that it is gratifying when your material makes people think more than just making them laugh, but actually gets them to the, sure. The but way I mean, the, the that's just gravy. I mean, it 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 has to make people laugh. I mean, if uh, if we're talking about stand up, then I would sacrifice thinking about something to getting them to laugh. If I can get them to laugh <laughs> and think about something, then that's and that's 100%. I nailed it. But it's always going to be about being funny first. you know. And if I feel like something is way too pointed and not funny, and it doesn't have to be ha-ha, clutch your stomach, laugh out loud funny, but at least funny. There's there's different kinds of funny, but it's got to be at its core funny, even if it's like a, a difficult, like, oh, no, he didn't kind of thing. Uh, it's got to be at least funny. Any uh, closing words about uh, public broadcasting and your recent appearances uh, on uh, on the weekend show? I'm for it. <laughs> I uh, think it's a good thing. I wish there was more federal funding for it. Uh, I understand certainly the need for uh, raising monies and how expensive it is, and I don't think people have a true understanding of of how difficult and 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 expensive it can be, but. Um, Thumbs up to public broadcasting. (laughs) David Cross brings his Making America Great Again tour to the Rialto Theater on Thursday, May 5th. There's an extended version of our conversation at (laughs) azpm.org. Goodbye pork pie hat. Orange was the color of her dress, then blue silk. 
and all the things you could be by now if Sigmund Freud's wife was your mother. The titles of bassist Charles Mingus's jazz compositions give some glimpse into his creative complexity. A native of Nogales, Arizona, Mingus worked with some of the greatest names in jazz and became one himself before his death in 1979 at age 56 from ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Since 1994, his memory and music have been celebrated in Nogales each year with the Mingus Hometown Jazz Festival. Alicia Schooler Hug is Charles Mingus's niece, a journalist and lifelong jazz fan who wrote a detailed biography called Art and Soul of Jazz, a tribute to Charles Mingus Jr. Well, all of the Minguses were born in Nogales because my grandfather, Charles Mingus Sr., was stationed there in the Army when the children were born. So my mother, who is the oldest, Vivian Mingus, uh, and my Aunt Grace, who was the next oldest, uh, were, and Charles, who was a baby, were all born in Nogales, Arizona. So Mama would always talk about Nogales, Arizona, as, as her birthplace. And tell us something about the racial makeup of your family. It's not, it's not a black or white situation, is it? So there's German, there's Chinese, and my great-grandmother, Phillips, was also um, part Native American. So there's quite a mix there. Dominguez children were, a lot, a lot of the time they spent, their dad wanted them to be separate from the rest of the children and telling them that they were uh, better than the other kids and they weren't allowed to play with the other children in the neighborhood because um, of their mixed uh, ancestry. And I think in those days, if you were um, light-skinned, black, then you, there was a lot of uh, confusion going on and a lot of discrimination and cat, there was a caste system even among the black people in the community. So they had to grow up under that with, with my grandfather, Mingus, just considered himself kind of in go-between. And he, would, he could actually pass for white whenever he wanted to. He was a blue-eyed man, and uh, he could go between the races. And he was the voice for both of them when he worked at the post office. He was kind of a spokesperson for both races. Tell us about the relationship between Charles and his two older sisters, your mother Vivian and your Aunt Grace. How do you think that influenced the man that Charles grew up to be? His sisters were assigned to protect him, to overprotect him, to make sure nothing happened to him. And also they were classically trained musicians. And my mother took piano lessons from the time she was preschool age. And that influenced Charles to become interested in the piano and, uh, and the other min- instruments as well. And their father really insisted on that they do that. And because he was, he was considered special as the only male child, he was given special privileges and allowed to do things that the girls weren't allowed to do. It created a lot of sibling uh, rivalry, I think. Charles made his name pretty quickly in the jazz world, moved up very fast, I would say. And a lot of that was due to the friendships he made early in life with uh, other similarly-minded, serious jazz artists. But tell us about the special connection that Charles Mingus had with Duke Ellington. Uh, What's the story behind that? He really admired Duke Ellington as an idol when he was a child. He heard him on the radio. But when he went to be with the Ellington Band, which was a very short-lived experience for him, He did not last long in the Ellington Band because he thought that Duke Ellington was taking some of his music, I think. But he still idolized him. He was the only one that Duke Ellington ever fired. 
<laughs> so they had to, they had that. That was kind of a special relationship. Do you think that success in the jazz world brought Charles happiness? I think it brought a lot of confusion in his life. No, I don't think he was ever really happy. One of the things that I saw when I went to see him play personally in San Francisco, he would be more comfortable with his instrument than he was with people. He would go after the shows that he did in North Beach. He would go into the back room and, and strum his bass, even though he performed, you know, for an hour and a half or so. He had a problem communicating with people, and I think that was because the father was such a disciplinarian, very strict and quick to punish his children um, physically and emotionally, and um, they they went through some things that most children wouldn't have to go through in terms of being uh, physically uh, whipped and punished. So they had to be very careful about their behavior when they were with their father. So I think that when he was with his buddies, like Buddy Collette uh, and his musical buddies that he grew up with there in Watts, uh, he was able to be more comfortable and to be who he was and to be, and I think that was also a reason why he felt the need to consume so much food. I talked to Buddy Collette for, at length just before he died, and he was telling me that he thought that uh, Uncle Charles was the one who invented the double-decker ice cream cone because one one scoop was never enough for him. That created an appetite that could not be satisfied. That was an emotional appetite, too. There was a void there. So he would try to fill it with food and also with relationships. I think with, with, he was a very much attracted to women, and um, he tried to fill that void that he felt um, with women, with food. My Uncle Charles was 56 years old when he died, and the day that he was cremated, 56 Sperm whales put themselves ashore and and, and uh, killed themselves in Mexico. And I verified that in an article that I read, so I thought that was a phenomenal thing that on the day that he was cremated, these 56 sperm whales killed themselves. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that story before, too, and I, I think there might be a mural in Nogales that uh, commemorates that now. Yeah, it's a true story because I, I did the research on it. And I found the, the newspaper article substantiating that story. Have you visited the Mingus Jazz Festival before? I went there two years ago when Charles McPherson was there. Charles McPherson was a saxophonist who was with my uncle for like 12 years. Mm-hmm. And he thought very highly of my uncle. And he said that Uncle Charles thought very highly of him as well, uh, as did Buddy Collette. Buddy Collette was saying that he, Charles was never disrespectful of him, uh, never displayed the behavior that he's noted for, the, the negative kinds of behavior that people seem to, you know, that hangs around his image. Alicia, can you describe one of the qualities that you think makes your uncle's music so outstanding and that has helped it to stand the test of time? I think because he featured so many other artists in his music, he let people he let the artists communicate with one another, and also boys hear their own voices through his music. He let them do whatever they felt like doing, and um, after a while, they got it. They were able to say whatever they wanted to say and with their instrument. And you talk about just um, 
being able to express oneself and I think that's that's what it is letting letting each artist express themselves and send their own message fables of Fabus, I think where he has that exchange with his drummer is just uh, is classic and I think it was inspirational for people of my era coming along some 20 years later back in the in the 60s when we it helped us to be able to voice our frustrations with what was going on throughout this country uh, racially so it was he was like a pioneer and um, a leader in that regard I think he really uh, attracted a lot of young followers and people who were really ready to listen to a music that was that sent messages to their hearts and to their souls I spoke with Alicia Schooler-Hug, author of Art and Soul of Jazz, a tribute to Charles Mingus Jr., now in its third edition. She will be in attendance at this Saturday's Charles Mingus Hometown Jazz Festival in Nogales, Arizona. There's more information and an extended version of the interview at azpm.org. Next on Dimelo, Sofia Paliza-Carr reports on some of the basic building blocks of homes in Arizona, mud, straw, dirt, and teamwork. Johanna Martinez has been in Tucson for 25 years, but she bought her first home, an adobe house in Barrio Hollywood, just five years ago. It's an old house. It's 1932. Been around probably one of the oldest houses in this neighborhood. We see adobe houses all around us in Tucson most notably and beautifully in the restored homes of Barrio Viejo. For the last few years, the Tucson Preservation Foundation has even hosted tours of these historic homes. Johanna used to live in Barrio Viejo, but as prices went up, she couldn't afford the neighborhood anymore, so she bought an old house on the west side of town. But after standing for 80-plus years, her adobe house was more than old. It was crumbling. Well, yeah, as a single mom who bought a fixer-upper houser, I was kind of overwhelmed um, by the scope of what a 1932 adobe repair job really meant. She was especially having trouble finding help for low-income families who needed to do adobe restoration. As an artist who's worked in um, traditional modalities with mud and earth plasters and stuff like that, I, I knew the importance of using the correct materials. The solution? A conversation with Penelise Droz, the director of a group called Sustainable Nations. Sustainable Nations helps strengthen and sustain ecological and cultural development in Native communities. So moving into Tucson adobe work made sense, with Johanna's house as its training ground and first major project. <laughs> Penelise sits in Johanna's yard with various bags around her, mixing them to make agave green, which is the new color that Johanna has chosen for her house. Like not, not milk, but cream. came out of the Native Environmental Justice Movement in Northern California. I am, uh, I'm an Anishinaabe, I'm mixed. I have a, a mixed cultural ethnic family. 
my mom raised me to, my mom is, is native and my mom raised me to be, to feel a pretty powerful sense of responsibility to the native community. Um, when you're building your home out of earth, um, double-walled adobe, straw bale, um, rammed earth, that earth keeps your home amazingly cooler in the summer, amazingly warmer in the winter. Um, concrete does not do this. Earth does this. So for the last year, a group of people from South Tucson, the Yaqui community, and the Orem community have been working on Johanna's house. They learned how to mix clay, create plasters, and pigment them. 18-year-old Carlos Valenzuela from South Tucson is part of this group. Uh, my grandfather had a, a business where he sold um, burnt adobe brick, and he built a lot of adobe brick houses in the west side of Tucson. Part of this initiative is passing on generational and cultural stories. At the beginning of this project, Sustainable Nations hosted a dinner where elders shared their memories about adobe. If I can remember, I think there was a little conversation going on about like having dirt floors in the adobe brick house and, and everybody was kind of like, oh yeah, I remember we had to like wake up early and start to sprinkle water on the dirt floor so it wouldn't be dusty throughout the day. And I think um, there was a lot, I saw like a lot of smiles go up and everybody kind of had that same memory and it was kind of like, it was, there was no kind of like looking down on each other or anything. It was more of just like, oh yeah, that's, that's our roots, that's our background. Art Lopez of the Tohono O'odham Housing Authority says learning to repair your own home can be a cheaper and easier alternative to taking out loans to make expensive repairs. But Art actually advocates for concrete, not adobe. The Tohono people, you know, we still believe in our culture and, and, and the tradition. But from our standpoint, we look at everything as an investment, but we're going to go with the most sturdy and stable home that we can put out for our tribal members. So the practice of adobe building exists in this sort of weird place in Arizona, as a traditional practice of the past for some, as the focus of a walking tour for others, and for Penalese and sustainable nations, it's a conduit to a future of sustainable and independent living. So are you guys ready to do some work? Yeah. No. After a year, the work on Johanna's house is coming to a close. But Penalese has other projects in mind. She's teaching kids how to build a bench at Mission View Elementary. And despite all the screams, every single kindergartner has both hands plunged deep into the mud. For the moment, at least it's clear that for whatever reason, mud is something everyone can get into. Is your neighborhood changing in a brick and mortar fashion? Or have there been more subtle structural changes? Let us know at demelostories.org. Demelo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.